When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Last week, while Washington was barreling forward with an impeachment inquiry, I flew to Texas. It seemed like a pretty awful time to be off the show, but I wanted to go anyway because I had this interview to do. A live show at the Texas Tribune Festival. Hey, everyone. Uh, hey. I'm Mary Harris. I host Slate's daily news podcast, What Next? And when I say it's daily, I mean five days a week. Although right now, I feel like I could use an hourly podcast giving me <laughs> updates. I don't know if you feel the same way. I was there to speak to former Senator Jeff Flake. You remember him, the Republican who held up the Kavanaugh hearings. He retired last year. But before doing that, he'd made a name for himself as a reliable critic of President Trump. He even skipped the Republican convention in 2016. He told the Washington Post, I've got to mow my lawn. But <laughs> 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 Jeff Lake, come on up. <laughs> come join me. Okay. I did mow my lawn, by the way. I mean, just, just say it. Today on the show, my full conversation with Jeff Flake about impeachment, about Brett Kavanaugh, and about why he didn't stay in Washington and keep fighting. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I spoke to former Senator Jeff Flake as the impeachment news in Washington was boiling over. The director of national intelligence had just testified in Congress. And earlier that morning, the whistleblower's complaint had been released to the public. Uh, so I have to tell you, before this week, I had a whole other set of questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. <laughs> but here we are. And so I feel like we have to start with impeachment. Uh, Knowing what we know today, and frankly, I'm not sure everything we know today, it's coming out so quickly. Are you in favor of the impeachment process moving forward? I've, I've been on record for the longest time. Uh, to step back, 
I'm not a fan of the president. Well, does this mean you're not going to say yes or no? <laughs> She's good. <laughs> She's good. Uh, I would. I don't want to see the president impeached. I really don't, because I, I don't want to get in a cycle of disqualifying public officials rather than beating them at the polls. And I've lived in countries where they do that, where they get in that cycle, and it's tough to get out. We may have already entered it, so I hope that he's not. But I, I understand um, and can appreciate what's facing the House right now, saying we need to fill our constitutional duty. And obviously not all the information is in, but what is in is extremely troubling. And uh, I can't imagine, and I, I still look at some of my colleagues who are passing it off as nothing and saying, what are you looking at? What would you do if the previous president had done this? So this is extremely serious. They need to take their job seriously. There's a lot more information that will come out, I think, in the coming days. and. Uh, I hope it doesn't go there. I really do, because I think that uh, we don't want to get in that cycle. Okay, but let me let me pin you down here, <laughs> because okay, impeachment inquiry. Mm -hmm. Because it seemed to me the second that Nancy Pelosi said those words out right. loud, all of a sudden it was like you pushed a little bit, and all of a sudden documents are coming out and transcripts are coming out. You know, we've right. been asking for those things in the court for a long, long time. Right. Well, I mean, there's nothing in the Constitution that defines what an inquiry is as opposed to hearings or, or whatever else. So that's just kind of a manufactured next step. But whatever gets more information out and, and, and uh, finally pushes the White House to respond because they aren't responding. They haven't responded to subpoenas. Um, and I think it's going to be even more difficult uh, because the uh, whistleblower is identifying individuals in the White House who the whistleblower alleges uh, helped try to cover this up. And so we're likely going to face some real confrontation here going forward. And uh, it's, it's hold on to your hats. It's going to be a, a turbulent ride, I think, in the next couple of months. Hmm. So maybe I'm going to put you down for yes for inquiry. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't say it. You I didn't say, say that. <laughs> um, but, uh, there is no way to look at uh, that transcript, partial transcript. I mean, it's not a full transcript and not say, oh my goodness, what is this? And, and it, even long before this, you'd say with the Mueller report, it may not say that the president should be impeached, but it certainly says he shouldn't be reelected. Hmm. And that's what I want my colleagues to realize. So. Well, so you have friends in Washington. <laughs> All the attention now is on your former colleagues in the Senate, because they would be the jury if there was an impeachment right. proceeding. So when you call your friends in DC, I mean, what are they saying about these new allegations? Oh, somebody mentioned uh, yesterday that uh, if there were a private vote, that there'd be 30 Republican votes. Uh, that's not true. There'd be at least 35, <laughs> or maybe, maybe more if it were a private vote, but that's not possible. And so they have to come out, and many of them are up for re-election in tough seats. And I know that feeling. And I hope that even if my colleagues aren't willing to, to vote for impeachment, they'd think, you know, there is, this is not worth it. And look at the long-term good of the Republican Party, because that's what I think we ought to be concerned about. We've 
given ourselves for whatever reason to political parties in this country. Hmm. And uh, we need two sane functioning parties to make this work. And uh, I think we're kind of moving away from that. So what was your question again? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Did you ever think about a third party? It just feels like you don't have to stand there while the president says stuff. You have a voice. Um, Yeah, on a third party. (laughs) I I don't think we're there where a third party is going to come about anytime soon. But I do think particularly if the president were to win a second term. If the president is defeated next year, I think then Joe Biden has talked about, and I've talked about for a long time, this this can be viewed as an aberration. You know, our sojourn into unfamiliar territory, we we get right back and say, that wasn't good. If he is elected again, reelected, that becomes much more difficult. But I, I think the manifestation of it is more likely to be that in certain states, probably like Arizona, you're likely to see more independent candidates, not aligning with a third party, but in just about every state now, you have a good chunk of the electorate. In Arizona, it's about a third, a third, a third, Republican, Democrat, independent. Mm-hmm. The independents don't vote in that propensity. Some of them uh, simply registered that way because they don't really affiliate. But that is growing, and you have a growing number of Republicans who certainly don't want to affiliate with this kind of nativist, protectionist, new kind of party. And I think there are a number of uh, Democrats who think that uh, the party may have shifted too far to the left. And so I think in the center there, there are more. And if a few states elected uh, independent senators, they could still caucus with the Republicans or the Democrats. Uh, that's how the, the system works. But it would be a much better body if we had a a group who were truly more independent than they are now, because the Senate is just not working. Um, It uh, is not the world's most deliberative body uh, by by a long shot. And and I think think you're more likely to see that if the president is reelected for a second term, which I hope does not happen. But waiting, doesn't it take some of the moral authority out of the action? Like saying like, okay, now it's too much. He's- oh, sure. <laughs> I, I think something we should have reached that a while ago. I mean, when, uh, if any of you haven't uh, picked up uh, this new book, American Carnage by Tim Alberta, it is uh, about the best encapsulation of what has, how the, the ground was plowed and made fertile for a populist to come in. And, and that was a period I lived in Washington, or was in office there at least. You know, Trump is not the cause of all these problems. He certainly has taken advantage of them in ways that uh, others would not. And uh, I think that we, we should have realized it a while ago when he was elected. I mean, just go down the line of what conservative, conservatism used to mean, mm-hmm. limited government. <laughs> That's kind of gone, trillion dollar deficits in times of plenty. Rejection of authoritarianism, you know, we've seemed to embrace it now. And so, I mean, I think we should have gone there along. But if people wake up, you know, a year from now, that's, that's okay. That's better than not waking <laughs> up at time. all. Yes. I'm glad you brought up that book because that book goes into some detail a little bit about your relationship with Mike Pence. And I thought of you yesterday because I was watching the president give this speech at the UN. And... He started to throw Pence under the bus a bit. He said, if you're looking into me, you should look into Mike Pence, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was... <laughs> um, 
Mike and I go way back. We both ran uh, kind of market-based or conservative think tanks in the 90s. We were elected at the same time. Um, we were best buddies in the house. And uh, in that, that book actually mentions uh, that a year or so ago, or just before the election, Mike came to Mesa, Arizona, where I live now, and he was about a mile from my house. And uh, so I sent him a text. I said, come by. I, you can help me trim hedges. And, uh, and, uh, a lot of lawn care. He's, he's, yeah, life. exactly. You know, um, he, he said, uh, only if I can cut uh, Trump pence in the hedge. I said, small hedge, only room for pence. And, uh, but, uh, and, uh, he never came. But, <laughs> but anyway, I, I feel badly for him. I really do. I mean, you, you, uh, but I, I've, I remain, you know, we remain friends, and he is loyal to a fault. Um, mm. I, there are, there's a virtue in that. And who's to say the path I've taken is, is any more virtuous? He may have felt that he could change the direction or rein the president in. Um, it's tough to see uh, how that is done, but, uh, but it's got to be uncomfortable for him, I think. Yeah, when was the last time you texted him? <laughs> I won't say. <laughs> if impeachment does move forward, I mean, if Trump is booted, there's a lot of ifs there, right? Does it solve the problem? Um, it's not guaranteed to solve the problem. Um, I don't think the party is going to change uh, direction as long as he's at the helm, but maybe him leaving will not change things either. It could be another populace that comes in. Uh, and that's partly why I, I hope we don't have to go down that road. If we must, we must. And if the evidence shows that he should, then we should. But I, I desperately hope that we don't because I do think that, that that does embolden him politically. I think Nancy Pelosi has been right politically to hold off as she has. But also, um, I think it's easier for that, uh, that group of strong supporters. Now, the president, when he talks about having 94, 96% of the Republican vote, uh, that's a little skewed because fewer people self-identify as Republicans now. Mm -hmm. So it's a smaller base, but still, it is significant. This is his party, no doubt. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think if he were to be impeached, it would be easier for a larger subset of that group to claim that uh, it was, uh, you know, it was done improperly and, uh, and have a grievance and be more likely to support somebody else. I think if he's defeated and handily at the polls, it's easier to say, we need to move on. We were wrong to go that way. So that's another reason I, I hope that uh, we don't have to go the, the impeachment route. So neighbors convincing neighbors versus senators telling you this was wrong. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk about something else, which is one of the moments during your public service when you really stepped into the spotlight, um, the hearings for Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, there's this picture of you that went viral. You must have seen it. David Simon tweeted it out. He called it the temptation of the flake. <laughs> uh, this, uh, Time magazine ran it as... Uh, yeah. One of their photos of the year. They, they called it the man in the middle. It looks there's, like a Caravaggio painting. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, that was, that was the time. And that was actually uh, one year ago tomorrow, I think. Yeah. But that was a, a defining moment. 
Yeah, I mean, it was a moment where you were deciding whether to push Judge Kavanaugh through or whether to hold back and have an FBI investigation. Yeah. And eventually you did decide yeah. to hold back and have an FBI investigation, but it was only a week long. And I wonder if now, a year later, you feel like that work was adequate. I would have liked to, to have had the FBI uh, start investigating earlier and uh, have done it more thoroughly. That was my preference. Um, having said that, uh, the investigation that they did was not insignificant, and those who pass it off as insignificant are wrong. And, and I, what I felt when I got to the committee that day, and it was a, just a food fight between Republicans and Democrats, I thought that the country is not settled. I had already indicated that I would vote to, to advance him to the floor, uh, because I, I knew I couldn't have stopped him there anyway. If Had I not voted, they still could have moved it to the floor without a recommendation and probably would have. But, uh, but then Chris Coons uh, gave a speech on the other side, which was a very sober, measured you know, speech saying, why can't we do this for a week? We, it, it can be limited in time. And the reason it needed to be limited in time is uh, this, the way I feel about the, the entire Kavanaugh thing. Uh, some Democrats, not all, some wanted to just run out the clock. There weren't many who supported Kavanaugh before the allegations who all of a sudden found a reason not to. There were a lot of them who just wanted any reason to stop. On the reverse side, on the Republican side, there were many Republicans, not all, but who didn't, if there was a problem that was an issue that would have been disqualifying, some of them didn't want to know about it. Mm -hmm. um, and some justified it in terms of, well, the Democrats are doing it too, but for whatever reason, that's not good, and it wasn't good for the country. And, and I felt that if Kavanaugh did end up on the court, then we shouldn't have him under such a cloud, that there ought to be something that, uh, that amounted to more due diligence on the Senate's part. And like I said, it would have been my preference to start uh, earlier, but in the end, uh, the way I looked at it, is I, I asked for the investigation, we got it, it was not insignificant. And, like uh, and um, I, I felt in the end, we cannot be at a standard and accept a standard where the, the mere allegation is enough to disqualify. Well, what did you see in that investigation that changed your mind? Because you've talked about how before uh, that moment, so many women had come forward to you, told you their own stories. You were feeling quite torn. And so I'm wondering what it was about that investigation that changed your mind. No, I, and I, I'm not going to reveal what was in the investigation, only that what has been reported publicly is there was nothing to corroborate. They interviewed anybody who had primary knowledge. They didn't go the second step to hearsay, or that, that would have taken them a, a lot longer time to. Um, but it was, there wasn't anything to corroborate it. And... Uh, and I, I, I felt that um, we, we can't have a standard. Where, and and, and some, some people then would come back and say, well, even if you put the allegations aside, his behavior before the committee should have been disqualifying. Yeah, 2,400 2, lawyers yeah, wrote yeah, and said that. Yeah. And, there's, <clears throat> and there is uh, there's something to be said for that. I didn't like his uh, performance at all. Mm. But I tried to put myself in his position too. Had I just been accused, not just the, the Ford allegations or Ramirez, 
you remember, it was Michael Avenatti and others coming forward. He was he's participated in gang rape, and there were just ugly, awful, unsubstantiated, just horrible things being said. And I tried to think of how I would feel if that were the case, if that had all been leveled against me and I felt that it was unjust. And then in a situation like that, you, you look at, uh, at his record, and his record on the circuit court, we could not find one clerk, one plaintiff, one colleague, anybody who said that he'd be in, been anything but, uh, but fair and just, and, or that there'd been any breach of decorum during that time. So that, and then, I mean, for me, that, that, was, that was important because as I said on the Senate floor as well, for those who expressed certainty on either side that he didn't do anything or he did, I never had that certitude, and I will never have, and I would suggest that none of us ever will. If you're talking about allegations that are old, made between people on both sides who had been drinking more than 30 years ago, I would submit that nobody, nobody, not perhaps even those in, involved completely will ever remember or know exactly what happened. And so for somebody to be so certain about what happened, uh, I just, I never got there. Well, but I wanna say one more thing here, which is you mentioned Chris Coons, mm -hmm. who's your friend. I'll be with him tomorrow. And he had a very different take on the FBI investigation. Mm -hmm. There's reporting now, first of all, that this guy, Max Steyer, came to him yeah. and said, there's another allegation of something that went wrong at Yale and that he tried to get that to the FBI, the FBI ignored it, that he had a call with the White House and he said, I thought we were gonna do this by the book. And that Don McGahn said, there is no book. So for someone like you, who defends decorum and institutions, right. the book seems important. Yeah. What we had uh, agreed to, and the, uh, the agreement was between myself and Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski and a few others on the Judiciary Committee and, uh, and Leader McConnell, was that it would be limited in time. We'd already agreed to that, one week, no more. And that it would be limited in scope, that they would interview primary witnesses. And if those primary witnesses mentioned things that would lead the FBI to go further to the second step, then they ought to take that step. But not to enter into the FBI investigation saying, we're going to go look at new allegations because you have to remember, there were, there were people simply trying to delay it. And that was not fair to the, the process, certainly not fair to, to Judge Kavanaugh. And so I, I hope we came out in a better place. I, I think we did. But uh, this whole nominating process and advise and consent, uh, ever since 2003, when we stopped allowing you know, the president's executive calendar, particularly judges, to come to the floor for an up or down vote, it's been polarized and increasingly so. And what we Republicans did uh, with Merrick Garland only put that in hyperdrive and it's gonna be difficult moving ahead. Did you know about that Max Steyer allegation in real time? No, I, I've, I've been, uh, I've uh, talked to a number of people in the last couple of weeks about it and I don't recall that, but you have to remember there were there were, Avenatti was calling with you know, other things and there were a lot of different things and that may have been in there, but I don't recall it. I don't remember it. And I even called some of my uh, legal folks on the committee and asked them if they remembered it and they didn't. 
Leaving aside those allegations, does it matter if he lied under oath? Because people did come forward and say, he said he didn't really drink that much, and we know all sorts of other allegations about him not being 100% honest. Yeah, I mean, it, it does matter, obviously. And, and on some things, you know, if you look back at your high school record, I, I'd probably say I scored more touchdowns than I really did <laughs> playing football, and, and uh, I've never been a drinker, but uh, I'm sure people minimize or maximize depending on what's, what's uh, preferable, uh, those things all the time. And I, I don't know that that should be dispositive. But a big lie like I did this or that or whatever, then yeah, that that should be disqualifying. But but I didn't see that. Would you vote for him again? If I had the same situation, yeah. I mean, I, I keep in mind this was for me. It would have been far easier at that time to to vote to vote uh, no. It's always easier to say no to somebody like this. But I, I felt it was extremely important not to set a precedent where. A, a, an allegation uncorroborated alone is disqualifying because uh, trying to get people to put themselves forward uh, as nominees or whatnot, if that is the case, I just don't think we can have that standard. And some people will say, well, this is advise and consent. It's different than you know, a court of law, but it's what we've got. It's the process we have for putting nominees on the court. And so I, it was, it was a, a tough thing to do, but I felt I did the right thing, and I still feel that. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean for it to be a laugh line, guys. <laughs> um, you left the Senate last year. You gave a couple of emotional speeches over the year where you talked about Washington and how it had changed. And it seems to me like since you left, uh, more and more people are making a similar decision. (laughs) There was an article in the Washington Post just this week reporting on the growing list of House Republicans who are retiring. It had this quote from Representative Paul Mitchell from Michigan. (laughs) And he said, we're here for a purpose. And it's not this petty childish bullshit. (laughs) Which struck me as kind of like what you were saying, just saltier. Thank you for mentioning (laughs) that, saltier. Um, I guess I see it differently, and I want you to help me understand your point of view, which is I feel like when we elect people to Washington, we're asking them to go there and fix the petty bullshit, and I don't want you to cede to it. Cede and and leave. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, uh, I, I understand that. Um, for me to stay in Washington uh, would have required, given the politics of today and where my party is, it would have required me to adopt the president's positions and condone his behavior. That's the reality. It's not what I wanted. I would have liked to have, to have stayed another term. It's tough to get to the Senate. And... Uh, and it's a significant thing as well to, to ask of your family. Mm. And uh, Your family had death threats, right? Oh, yeah. My wife marks the time out of office you know, in the weeks and now months without death threats. Hmm. And uh, it's, I mean, just two or three weeks ago, two individuals were sentenced for death threats against uh, me and my family. And uh, my wife received many 
text messages over a period of a week with links to beheading videos at, with the addresses of all of our kids. That's part of the, the mix as well, you think. You know, you want the fever to cool just a bit. I, don't, I have one more question because I know that we're running over time. You haven't ruled out running for office again, right? Is my wife listening? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I haven't ruled it out. I, I, I didn't leave because uh, you know, I, was a pox on the institution, or the Senate, or the House. It's a good system we have, and good people involved. And I, I, what would you do differently? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's a different world. So, uh, I mean, I'd be entering kind of where I left, I think, if I went in now. I'm hopeful that the, the fever will cool. I can tell you right now there's no, no place for me in my party. Um, I don't think that will always be the case. But right now, uh, there just isn't to going through the primary process. So it's, it, until uh, things change, uh, then I think 18 years is a good run. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you Definitely. for having me. Thank you. Former Senator Jeff Flake is now a fellow at Harvard's Institute of Politics. This show was recorded as part of the Texas Tribune Festival. We are super grateful for the Tribune's help in getting it all done. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, Mara Silvers, and Danielle Hewitt. Thank you to everyone, Dahlia Lithwick and Allison Benedict and Jeremy Stahl, who held down the fort while I was away. And thank you to Katie Rayford, who let me record this whole show in her hotel room closet under a blanket. If you want to see pictures of the live show, go find me on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. I am Mary Harris. I will talk to you tomorrow. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.